Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 58. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'm your host. And today we are talking about land acknowledgements and Living Heritage Research Council. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Nooch or Ute People's Treaty Lands, the Dineta, and the Ancestral Puebloan homeland. And today we have Anna Cordova on the show. Anna Cordova is the lead archaeologist at, at the City of Colorado Springs and the chairman on the Board of Trustees of Living Heritage Research Council. So you probably remember Anna from episode eight, very early in Heritage Voices uh, with her decolonizing anthropology episode. And then on the for the past three years, we calculated before this, she's also been the chairman of the board of trustees of the, the nonprofit that we've talked about here on the podcast before. So very, very excited to have you back on the show. Welcome to the show, Anna. Thank you, Jessica. So first, I should say that while I am the lead archaeologist for the city of Colorado Springs Parks and Rec, I am not speaking on behalf of the city at this time. So just got to get that out of the way. Yeah. Okay. So this episode came out of a couple different things. First of all, that was a really popular episode, your episode on decolonizing anthropology. <laughs> and so I thought that people would appreciate hearing from you again and hearing what you've been up to in the over four years, which is crazy since you were on the podcast last. And also it came out of some conversations that we'll get to a little bit later about land acknowledgements. But to start us out, what have you been up to over the past four years? <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> no, uh, COVID has obviously thrown a, a wrench in a lot of things, but you know, besides being a mom to five kids and Wife and all that stuff and archaeology. I don't know. We've done a lot of projects actually recently out in Garden of the Gods Park, which is a really popular place for tourism here in Colorado Springs, but also a really significant place for indigenous people. So lots of tribal consultation out there, various other projects. And then, of course, being now on the board for Living Heritage Research Council. So just involved with a lot of the fun projects that were that are going on there. Yeah. And okay, if you're not going to toot your own horn, I'm going to toot your horn. Uh, in the past four years, Anna's also received the State Archaeologist Award, as well as an award from the American Cultural Resources Association for, well, Anna, and I should say her partners as well, uh, for a specific project. Can you tell us more about that project and who you worked with and what you guys did? Sure. That project was the Palmer Midden Archaeological Site. So, the founder of Colorado Springs is General William Jackson Palmer. He lived here in Colorado Springs from about 1871 and then passed away in 1909. But he lived on a property that's called Glen Erie, and it's in the mouth of a canyon, actually called Queens Canyon, just north of Garden of the Gods Park. And I was hired as the archaeologist for the city, the first archaeologist for the city, in the June of 2016, in the fall of 2016, I was monitoring for a project where they were doing drop structures along a creek in Garden of the Gods Park, um, just south of where Palmer lived. And I was monitoring at request of the Southern Ute and the Mountain Ute uh, for the project that they were doing ahead of also a project where they were going to put a large detention pond at the very northeast side of Garden of the Gods Park. And there had been a site um, that was recorded previous to me becoming city archaeologist, and but it was noted as an ineligible trash scatter, meaning that it was not eligible for the National Register of Historic Places. They thought it was a turn-of-the-century trash scatter, and they recorded it and figured we could move on and build a pond over 
over it, you know, on it, in it, whatever. And so I knew the site was there, but I started paying more attention as they wore away some of the vegetation with some of their large, you know, heavy equipment that was coming in to put drop structures in the creek and noticed that the site was a lot more extensive once the vegetation was kind of erased in part of it. And then I also started noticing some of the garbage that seemed a little more fancy than your average turn of the century trash. Um, it was actually a construction worker that picked up a, a whole bottle and showed me it was a Bromo seltzer bottle from Baltimore, Maryland. And the patent date on it was 1889. And when I looked it up, it had only been produced for a few months in 1889. So I knew the site was then older than they had previously recorded it as. And then I was just seeing, you know, certain things that I was familiar with, I guess, but had never really seen on a site before. Lots of the kind of like high end blue on blue on white ceramics and things like that. And when they went to go revegetate the road, I asked them to let me be there and monitor and they started loosening up the dirt and we made them stop because within probably the first, oh, five meters or so, they pulled out just a bunch of whole bottles and things I'd never seen before, like satin enameled bricks, which I have only ever seen on this site. Wait, satin enameled bricks? Yeah. What does that even, I don't, <laughs> cultural anthropologist here, what does that even mean? It's a good question. So they're, I think, Inside, they're probably more like regular bricks. I think they use like a white paste. Uh, we were finding other bricks on site too that were found in Pueblo, that were manufactured in Pueblo, Colorado. So pretty close, locally sourced. And then another one that the they're being manufactured here in Colorado Springs. But these satin bricks, it was a white paste covered in this like shiny white gloss just to make them prettier, you know, fancier. They would often use them, I think, for like bank fronts and things like that. But they said Chicago huh. on one side and Tiffany on the other. That was one thing that I had never seen before. And so, you know, that was noteworthy. And, of course, that speaks of a pretty high socioeconomic status. If if you've got local bricks, but then you're also importing fancy bricks from Chicago, you've got a reason or money or both. Yeah. And then a few other things. I mean, the amount of artifacts was really pretty staggering as well. Just the few inches of soil they pulled up. I mean, they pulled up hundreds of artifacts and including a bunch of whole bottles which i had never seen in an archaeological context not in a buried context anyway i had never really seen whole bottles you know you, we always find fragments of them or pieces of them and we were finding worcestershire bottles and whiskey bottles and medicine bottles and like i said probably at least 10 of them just in that little area that they had started pulling up for revegetation and then a couple other things that were noteworthy were some Bases of some light bulbs, the glass was mostly gone, but the inside part where part of the filament was and such, there was a really solid piece of little, little piece of glass that had a white paper in it with patent dates from the late 1880s and some serial numbers. And I'm thinking, you know, who has electricity out here at that time? Guard of the Gods at the time. Now it's, you know, it's on the west side of Colorado Springs, but it's still very much within this, you know, the main part of the city. At that time, though, there were only a handful of people that would have lived out there and Garden of the Gods would have been a couple miles from town. So the handful of families that were out there, generally those sites are eligible because they're significant people in the history of Colorado Springs, including, of course, the founder, General Palmer. And the third artifact that was really of note, I did not recognize when I first saw them. They were large dry cell batteries. And so they they had like this kind of black plasticky stuff on the top that really smelled strongly of petroleum and then they were kind of they were made as like a cylinder made out of cement I guess kind of about the size of a small loaf of bread and I didn't know what they were when I first saw them it didn't take a whole lot of research to figure that out but when I figured out they were dry cell batteries of course then the same with the electricity it's like hey who has that out here we're right outside the mouth of Glen Erie and uh, Queens Canyon where Palmer lived he had a whole lot of money. He was associated with the railroads. He had significant wealth. And so that was, of course, my first thought. But then I had to prove that connection. It actually ended up pretty easy to do. The The property now, so I should back up a little bit too and say that Palmer had a castle that he built there starting in about 1904. So he lived there from 1871 with his wife, Queen, and his three daughters. And then, of course, had a whole estate of people to take care of horses and gardens and you know things like that. 
So they had a really nice house there before, but he sold his railroads around 1904 and started building this large castle that is still there, still pretty amazing. It's really well preserved. The people that own the property now are the navigators. They're a Christian missionary organization, but they the property is open for teas and tours and weddings and things like that as well. They hold lots of conferences there too, but they have their own historians. Um, at the time it was Donald McGilchrist and Susan Fletcher. And when I found these and of course wanted to make that connection to Palmer, I gave them a call to see if I could bring some of the artifacts by and see if they recognized them. Just before I walked out the door to do that with some of the artifacts, I Google, I put into Google Tiffany Enameled Brick Company because that satin brick said Tiffany on one side, Chicago on the other. I put that in and then I put in Colorado Springs and Palmer just to see what would come up. And the first thing that came up was a Google Doc that somebody had uploaded. It was the Brick Builder Monthly from 1904. Yeah, a little catalog that, you know, was brick builders to advertise their wares, I guess. And again, 1904 is a significant date for Glenary because that's when he started building his castle. And when I came across the page that had all that highlighted in there, it's it said it was talking about the Tiffany Enamel Brick Company shows a steady growth in their, you know, their sales and things. And then it says our bricks are being used in the following new buildings. And you go down the list and right in the middle of that list is it says, what does it say? Something like General William Jackson Palmer Residence, Glen Erie, Colorado Springs, Colorado. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was pretty cool. Pretty big connection. Of course, like I said, that was right before I walked out the door. The reason I needed to connect it to Palmer also was that, like I said, it was listed as an ineligible site, meaning that we could build this large detention pond that was slated for a few months later on top of it without any further research. And so if it is Palmer's, then it's certainly eligible for the National Register of Historic Places, and we need to preserve it. And so, or at least study it before before it goes away, right? Yeah, so I, I found that on Google and then immediately headed over to, to Glen Erie to talk to the navigators, historians. And when I told them what I'd found about the bricks, they said, oh, yeah, of course, that those bricks are still here. Of course, they're they're lining the one wall of the bowling alley that he had in the basement of the castle. No way. So, <laughs> right, right, exactly. So, you know, speaking of opulence, <laughs> one just has a bowling alley in their basement. But and then they were also uh, they also made up the electrical house. So nobody, of course, in Colorado Springs probably had electricity at about that time. And but Palmer did because he had his own electrical house. He was generating his own electricity. And that's what those bricks were being used for. So that, again, brought me to the light bulbs and the light bulbs. They pulled out one. I had sent them a few pictures to show them the artifacts I had to let them prepare. And when they brought out a fully intact uh, light bulb still in the box that it came in and they pulled that out and it had that little piece of paper still inside of that one, too. And it had the same patent dates and the same serial numbers. So, you know, there, there's no I don't think you can get a stronger connection in archaeology than something like that. And then the same with the with the, they had a perfectly preserved dry cell battery as well. And they said that they were operating his electric gate starting in about 1904. <laughs> Before anybody even had electricity in Colorado Springs, if you were to come to Palmer's house, he had, you know, what probably seemed pretty magical electric gates operated by these big dry cell batteries. Naturally, as one does. Anyway, that was significant. I felt like, you know, if you're the Colorado Springs archaeologist, you can't really get any more Colorado Springs than finance founders, all of his trash. So the sites actually, they actually turned out to be two sites. So two different dumping episodes. And it looks like we've got all of his trash from about 1871 until they sold the property. His daughter sold the property in the 19 teens. And we even have a little bit after that where they were still kind of dumping trash right there along the Creek. So yeah, really significant, really big sites as well. Yes, seriously. Before they, they went ahead. We couldn't, the reason they were building the detention pond there, the city of Colorado Springs was building it, um, was because of the fires and floods that had happened here in 2012 and 2013 and trying to protect the neighborhood that was south of the park. And so there was, then there was really no other place to put the, the detention pond. So we couldn't, mm. we couldn't do anything but excavate um, and do some mitigation before it went away. So we were able to do that 
I should very much mention that FEMA was a huge part of the project. So was NRCS. So the archaeologist with NRCS and then with FEMA, Charlie Bellow is their archaeologist for, for this division here. And so obviously he had a huge part in the mitigation, in writing, helping me with writing all of the, some of the research questions and just how we were going to handle this site and who we were going to hire and how that whole thing was going to go. Uh, we ended up hiring Alpine Archaeological Consultants and they tested both of the sites to, you know, justify why we were going to excavate. They, they changed the eligibility and then they ended up excavating it actually about, I think, about a day after I went on maternity leave. So it was like <laughs> a couple years worth of work to get it all set up. And then I, I missed really fun excavation part. But <laughs> yeah, but you know, sucks. I like my three-year-old, so he's he was worth it. <laughs> yeah, you'll keep him. <laughs> um, but we ended up, they, I think they, they found about, oh, well, over 60,000 artifacts. And that was in, you know, just samples where we actually mm. ended up sampling, even with like over 80 test units, um, that was less than 2% of the site. But they were just so dense in artifacts. There's so many things. And so, of course, that led to a bunch of questions about curation and all kinds of other things. But they're now being curated at the Colorado Springs Pioneers Museum. There's a, an exhibit called Finding the Facts. And it, they were actually, the state of Colorado Springs um, this year just had their sesquicentennial so their 150th anniversary where palmer founded the city july 31st 1871 so we've been planning for a few years to do some exhibits and some celebrations for the 150th (laughs) and they were already planning on doing a palmer exhibit and then we found this site and were able to incorporate not only a lot of the stuff that the pioneers museum already had with archival material and their own collections of artifacts but we were able to add than archaeological component to it. So it's a really fun exhibit. Alpine, of course, did a ton of work in their excavation and their analysis. Sarah Millward, Mike Prouty, and John Horn were really big parts of that project. So so the award is from the, from the state archaeologists was given to FEMA, Alpine, and the city of Colorado Springs. So it's a fun project and it kind of keeps on giving. But yeah, it's a it was a cool project. Yes. And then obviously the uh, the American Cultural Resources Association Award as well. ACRA. I just have to throw that in because I'm on the ACRA board. So. Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> One's a big one, too. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, we are already at our first break point, which is crazy. But uh, it was so cool to hear more about that project because obviously I knew about it, but not have never gotten the, the chance to hear about it quite that in depth. So very exciting to hear more. Yeah. Um, and... We'll be right back. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30 off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code HEVO, H-E-V-O. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Okay, so we're back. Okay, I want to ask you another question about this project because it's just really cool and interesting. And that question is, you know, basically... 
you're an indigenous person, you're a, a city of Colorado Springs employee. Like, what was it like doing this project with that, that indigenous lens? And, and was that different from, you know, the lens of a, a Colorado Springs employee? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's kind of a, a complex question, huh? Um, <laughs> I, I, I thought it was pretty interesting. A bunch of my friends here in the Native community thought it was pretty entertaining that it was kind of flipping the script of indigenous anthropologists looking at a rich white guy, founder of the city. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that was interesting. And obviously it stirs up a bunch of different feelings, too, because that project wasn't all about Palmer either. We're still obviously on indigenous land and impacting greatly with the 17 acre detention pond indigenous land and, you know, plant relatives and animal relatives and all that too. And so there was a lot of close communication with the tribes on this project as well. Um, Not only because it was a section 106 project, but because I try as an archaeologist and as a city employee to always try to make sure that that is a forefront of the projects that I do is really getting that indigenous aspect that the tribal representatives want to do in there. So Of course, we do the Section 106 stuff when it's in contacting all 49 tribes in Colorado when we have a project like this. But we work most closely with the Ute tribes, especially the Southern Ute and the Ute Mountain Ute. And so they were really helpful on this project, you know, came out and did a blessing ahead of it. We made sure to monitor the entire excavation of the pond when they were actually constructing it in order to, to make sure that we weren't finding anything significant or that we didn't want to encounter, I guess, with that part of the project. But yeah, I think just always keeping in mind, um, no matter what the project is, no matter what kind of rich white guys trash you're looking at, that we're on indigenous land and this is impacting more than just the, you know, the citizens of Colorado Springs and the, the descendants of Palmer himself. So. Yeah. So were you, speaking of that, were you guys able to incorporate the descendants of Palmer at all into this project? You know, I'm not actually sure um, how involved the descendants of Palmer are. I know that, well, I shouldn't say I know, but I'm pretty sure that they don't really live in Colorado Springs anymore. I think I would have to ask people at the museum how closely they communicate with them. I know there is some communication because they've donated to the Colorado Springs Pioneers Museum, um, a lot of Palmer's things and journals and um, different artifacts and toys that his children had and things like that too. But yeah, that's a great question. That may be something for the future that we want to go back in and really look at as well. I know that like this project kind of just keeps on giving too because uh, with COVID, we haven't been able to do it yet. But since we've had had the artifacts now at the College Springs Pioneers Museum in the arch- uh, or in the uh, curation facility, one of our goals is to actually go through and talk to the Glenary historians and see if they recognize things that the archaeologists who excavated and analyzed them wouldn't necessarily recognize or see. Maybe they'll catch some things. Um, same with the, the folks that are really kind of the Palmer experts at the College Springs Pioneers Museum, just to go through and look at some of those things and maybe give a different perspective on them and maybe be able to get more information than we already have. So yeah, it would be great if those descendants are are something that could be helpful or would want to be involved. I think we would more than welcome that. Okay. Yeah. So that kind of takes us to the, the conversation that brought us to this podcast uh, in the beginning today, um, which was, you know, we were talking about, you know, indigenous land, um, and so we wanted to, to talk some more on this podcast about land acknowledgements, because that's something that we've touched on, but not in as much depth as I think the topic could use, particularly because of, of some of the concerns that you raised. So this came up. So Anna, again, is on the board of Living Heritage Research Council. And we Living Heritage Research Council is uh, sponsored by Osprey Packs, so the, the backpack company Osprey. They're located in Cortez, Colorado, which is where Living Heritage Research Council is based, which is funny because Cortez is a very small town, very far from a lot of things. And so the area is actually 
really underserved. And Osprey has been a, a huge partner to nonprofits in the, the Four Corners area, which is, again, a very underserved area. So our area certainly appreciates Osprey. And, you know, you go on the trails in the, the Four Corners and you'll see just Osprey packs everywhere. There's a lot of loyalty. But anyway, Osprey has been a great sponsor of Living Heritage Research Council. And one thing that um, when we were talking to them not too long ago, they asked if possibly we could lead a conversation about land acknowledgements. So basically, they're partnered with an organization called the 52 Hike Challenge, uh, along with uh, Outdoor Research and OBOS. And 52 Hike Challenge is it's an organization that encourages people to challenge themselves to do a hike a week for a year in order to encourage them to get outside and be active and all of these things. As part of that, they have monthly webinars to encourage participants to keep going and, and learn more and support each other. And so for one of those in November, they were going to be doing a presentation on mapping or uh, using a map, I guess, probably is a better description. But as part of that, they asked us if we would come on this presentation and present about the importance of knowing whose land you're on and land acknowledgements and, yeah, that topic. So Anna agreed to come on and talk about, you know, talk about land acknowledgements and and knowing whose indigenous land you are and on but she also wanted to highlight some of the challenges and concerns about land acknowledgements so anna why don't you tell us basically what a land acknowledgement is to start with let's see what is a land acknowledgement i think it depends on who's giving it and what they kind of want to get out of it I guess I would define land acknowledgements. Generally, it's it's become sort of popular lately. I get requests for advice about them pretty regularly and have been for probably the last year and a half, maybe two years, where it's kind of people, especially ahead of like conferences or different group presentations, want to acknowledge the land that they're on and who was here before them. They're generally just people, at least in my experience, um, it depends on who gives them. But if it's non-Native people, it's generally getting up and kind of acknowledging that there were people here before them. And depending on where they're at, they'll kind of talk about, I guess, like the different Indigenous groups that were there before them. I don't know. That's, that's at least been my experience of them. I think from uh, the Indigenous community, at least, the, you know, the the ones that I'm connected to, we like for it to be a lot bigger than that, uh, more in depth than that. When I've heard other indigenous people give them, or if I were to give one, I really like to talk about like the, not just saying like, you know, these were the people that were here. It's also talking about some of the history, talking about the, you know, disenfranchisement and the, the bad stuff. Also, I feel like a lot of times land acknowledgements are pretty token gesture where it's kind of this, uh, makes other people feel good for for doing something and saying something, but then that's about as far as it gets. And so I I always like to emphasize that it needs to be more than that. Give people direction um, about how to actually take action to promote Indigenous voices and to think about that land a little differently and really acknowledge the the, the history. I mean, the history of Euro Americans, especially with with Indigenous people, is often pretty ugly. And so really talking about not just acknowledging that, but really looking at ways that that can be reconciled in some ways. Of course, we can never fully reconcile all the things that have happened, but really looking at ways that you can change your thinking or, you know, be involved in helping Indigenous causes and and things like that. Yeah. So that was one thing that you, you mentioned in your talk was, you know, some of the ways to, to make land acknowledgements better and especially reciprocity. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Like about the idea of that if you're just giving a land acknowledgement, that's not really enough. Right. I think one of the things that I always promote when I talk to students or, or whoever, and it kind of can come off as cliche or maybe a little cheesy, but talking about, again, just maybe 
decolonizing the way that you think, the way that you think about those properties. I think a lot of, especially like, you know, westernized or American type of thinking is very much separating people from nature as if we're not a part of it, but, you know, shifting your thinking to a little bit more of an indigenous way of thinking of knowing that whatever you're impacting when you're out is, is impacting all kinds of things, including humans, plants and animals and the land itself, but also humans. And so thinking about it that way. So just the kind of a shift in the way that people think about the places that they're at and what they're doing to them. Um, I, th- I think also, like I said, taking action. So last week was a great opportunity talking to the 52 Hike Challenge and Osprey and Oboe's partners just about ways to support them. And I think a great example is is supporting an organization like Living Heritage Research Council. I, I really talked about, about how the goal of Living Heritage Research Council is to amplify Indigenous voices and to just help facilitate Indigenous-led projects when it comes to uh, preserving culture and land and making different connections with landowners so that they're aware of Indigenous perspectives and can maybe even promote those things as well. And so, yeah, and I, you know, we talked about to finding people in your own community where you can connect with that, find an Indigenous perspective on their own history. So looking up like the, the tribes around you's websites to hear what they're saying about themselves, maybe going to their cultural centers or museums or things like that, and really making it something that is is something that you you think about on a daily basis or at least educate yourself on what kind of history there is around you what the what the indigenous people around you are uh, struggling with and seeing if there's ways that you can help as well you know really taking action not just giving a land acknowledgement to to make yourself feel better or you know or empty words you know just do something yeah i mean um so I- I'm uh, quoting a little far here, but my understanding that there was a session at the the Plains Conference where to, there was a Tipo panel, and and that apparently um, someone from the Tipo panel described land acknowledgments as someone basically saying like like let's say someone stole your car, and then they're like, hey, I really like this car. I really appreciate that you bought this car so I could have it. I'm gonna keep it though, uh, and keep using it and keep benning, benefiting from it. Um, but I see you, I see you that this was your car originally. So I'm, I'm sorry. I'm totally, I'm sure way miss, uh, quoting this person. It's very secondhand, but I just loved that, that analogy. So I, I thought I'd share it even though it's way far from the source. No, that's it. That's a good analogy. I agree. <laughs> okay. So like, let's say that you are, Osprey, you're the 52 Hike Challenge people, you are a university, you are a museum. And, you know, is it is it worth it to do a land acknowledgement at all? Like, and if so, how do you show that you've, you know, done that work that you've talked about to, to show people that like, when you say your land acknowledgement, that you really, you really mean it? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Good point. I think first off, you got to make sure that you are doing that, mm-hmm. especially with larger organizations. I think, you know, it's different for individual people when it comes to actually going out and recreating in those places or using those lands to, you know, change their way of thinking. But, and you know, like I said, get involved with the local indigenous groups. But for larger university, you know, organizations like universities or museums, make sure that you are engaging with the indigenous community around you. Make sure that if you do have a land acknowledgement, I feel like if you're going to do a land acknowledgement, it needs to come from the uh, indigenous voices around you. I don't feel like they should ever be written by non-native people. I'm always emphasizing that indigenous people are still here and still know their histories very well, obviously. And that often I feel like gets lost in translation uh, where, uh, you know, a lot of big organizations want to, that's their thing is to tell history or talk about those places because they're kind of experts in their field, they feel like, but it needs to come from indigenous perspectives and indigenous voices. So make sure you're amplifying those. I think land acknowledgements can do the opposite when, when they're not coming from an indigenous perspective or an indigenous voice. Um, They need to tell the whole truth, 
that's something that I know some people don't love about land acknowledgments is that they, if they're telling the whole truth, they can make some people uncomfortable. But I feel like that's the that's the least we can do for Indigenous people is at least tell the whole truth. All right. Well, we are already at our second break point. It's crazy how fast this goes. <laughs> but we will be back here in a minute. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, so we are back. And one thing that... So we were just talking about land acknowledgments and examples of what that could look like, whether or not it makes sense to do them. And I just wanted to give an example of uh, a project that I'm working on where I, I do feel like uh, somebody is, is really trying to do a good job on land acknowledgements. And I feel like that is the, the city of, of Boulder, Colorado. Uh, I've been working with them through the for-profit, um, so uh, Living Heritage Anthropology, my company. And basically, I've been helping them since 2018 work on their tribal consultations along with uh, Ernest House Jr. as well from Keystone. He's also been assisting with those efforts. And one part that Ernest Moore has been taking the lead on, um, but that I've been helping with is, and obviously the city uh, affiliates specifically is, is who I'm thinking about the city and uh, Christian driver as well. They've been working a lot on the, their land acknowledgement and it's not finished yet. So unfortunately I won't be able to put it in the show notes or anything, but these efforts started, you know, we've been doing consultation on other things, specifically one of the bigger things, renaming settlers park to the people's crossing which was a, a name decided on um, after several consultations with uh, 16 tribes that the city currently consults with. And so after that name change, working on education and interpretation aspects at the People's Crossing, and which is a, it's a popular recreation area west of Boulder, and so working with the tribes to, to create what they want to say to the, the general public about this place and their connections to the area. And on the side of, of that um, process, working also on a land acknowledgement. And the land acknowledgement in large part, in large part, it comes from the city's Indigenous Peoples Day re- resolution. There was a committee that included Indigenous people that worked on that, but building it now that they're doing tribal consultation in depth. So the current land acknowledgement is has been worked on with the tribes in consultation, and it includes, you know, like what the, the tribes call themselves and a longer description of, of the history. You know, obviously a lot of it is, is not positive and the city's connections to the Sand Creek Massacre, for one example. And I think importantly, again, that the, the city is doing these efforts to uh, not only work with the tribes on things that are interested in them, but really trying to work on projects that the tribes want the city to work on. And that's that's an effort, you know, things that are, are coming up in these consultations, the city is uh, working on trying to make them happen. So I think that's just one example that to me is a really good example of someone really trying to do the land acknowledgement in the right way. And like they would tell you, um, they don't want it to be performative and they want to make sure that there's action behind those words. So, so I, I, I just wanted to highlight that because again, I do think that they're, they're doing a great job. It's not finished, but they're pretty close and 
something that they and the tribes have been working very hard on. Yeah, so Anna, any final thoughts on, on land acknowledgements before we move on to talk about some other things? I think, I think you know, the, the takeaway, of course, is, you know, land acknowledgements aren't all bad. I feel like I kind of talk negatively about them a lot as being token gestures and things and them not ever being able to encompass that, you know, the history of those places. But they also can act as catalysts, I think, for people taking action and for people learning more about those places, the indigenous history of those places. So they're, they're not all bad. I think they're a trend in the right direction as long as, as they foster more action. Yeah. And so on that note, uh, let's say, you know, you work for a city or you work for a museum or a university or um, some other organization, a nonprofit, perhaps. Would it make more sense to start with a land acknowledgement or is it better to, you know, just start actually taking action or is it better to like some sort of combo depends on the circumstance you know, in your ideal world, what would you, what would you see? It's a good question. I feel like taking action is by far the most important thing. And I feel like if that isn't already being done, that should be the focus. I think land acknowledgements, like I said, can, can help start people in thinking about taking those actions and doing those things that would lead to some changes. But yeah, but I think without action, they don't really mean anything. So Right. And if you're going to be like agonizing over your land acknowledgement, maybe it's a better use of your time just to do the thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> cool. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about what doing the thing looks like. What are some examples in your life of, of good work that you've seen trying to, trying to do the thing? Hmm. Well, I mean, aside from the work that that you all do with Living Heritage Research Council, I feel like that's very much doing the thing, I guess. Um, doing, taking action to, and and knowing your role in things as well. I might be an Indigenous person, but I'm certainly no authority on anything Indigenous either. So going, you know, finding the proper people to help facilitate the the needs that they have again, doing like those indigenous led projects and, and knowing where we stand as archaeologists, anthropologists, non-native people. Uh, let's see, an example, I think of some good things. I worked in Hawaii for several years. And the, the reason I went there, honestly, was because as an undergrad, you know, about 20 years ago, I didn't see any examples of really any other indigenous archaeologists. I'm not saying they didn't exist, but it was hard to find any sort of publications or anything in my research that was really from an indigenous perspective on archaeology, like as an archaeologist. And so the ones that I did find were Hawaiian authors. And I think uh, I never want to portray it like, the history of Hawaii is all sunshine and rainbows and, you know, everything is all well and good there. There are definitely struggles that native Hawaiians have and continue to have, but I do feel like it was colonized a little bit differently than here on the mainland. And so that influence of Hawaiian language and Hawaiian culture is pretty prevalent and fairly strong, I think in the state and in even some government organizations and things. And so I wanted to see how Native Hawaiians were doing things um, and see if I could, you know, take that back here to the mainland. So I applied for a job as, you know, a recent undergrad graduate in 2007 and started working there in August of that year. And mostly I wanted to learn from a Native Hawaiian archaeologist and that perspective and work with the Native Hawaiian community. And I was lucky enough to get a job with Cultural Surveys Hawaii. And I worked under Tanya Lee Gregg, who I can never say enough good things about her, but she is Native Hawaiian and was running the office on Maui there. And I learned a lot about how to work with, you know, your own Indigenous people from her. But most of what I was doing there, I was lucky enough to do 
cultural impact assessments. Those fall under a lot of times, we kind of do something similar here on the mainland, um, in, I'm sure in other states, but in Hawaii, they're part of the, it's it's like tribal consultation, except Native Hawaiians aren't organized in by tribes. And so it's a little bit different in the way that you communicate with the Native Hawaiian families and different organizations, but it's required in the state, anytime there's state or federal funding, to do these projects. And really it's to notify Native Hawaiian descendants of those areas about the projects that are going on and ask them about impacts to past, present, and future traditional cultural practices and properties. And I feel like I actually ended up doing my master's thesis later on after I worked there on the effectiveness of those and what really happens to them afterwards. But really like, you know, things like that, that are meant to really listen to those indigenous voices and take them into account when you're doing projects. I feel like that's, you know, something that's a, that's an example I think of, of, of something like that. Um, There's also some, um, an organization there that a lot of the land managers take into account where they're taking the wisdom and knowledge from Native Hawaiians on how to steward and care for the places there. And those land managers are, in theory at least, supposed to then take that into consideration when they're managing and making decisions for those properties. And I think that's really similar to what, you know, Living Heritage Research Council is trying to do in amplifying those voices, not only to benefit the the Indigenous community, but also to you know, show people that there is indigenous science and indigenous wisdom that is thousands of years old and needs to be listened to and accounted for when it comes to making those decisions. Yeah. And I mean, I think if you're an individual, there's still lots of of things that you can do as an individual, like even if you're not an organization that can do tribal consultation or all of those things. One of the easiest being donating to organizations that are that are doing this type of work. So, for example, just like off the top of my head, a couple of organizations that come to mind are NAFPO, the National Organization of Tribal Historic Preservation Officers, NARF, the Native American Rights Fund, the Colorado Plateau Foundation in this, here in the Southwest. Also, like your local-ish tribal museum or cultural center or nonprofit based on the locate on on the reservation. So for example, like the Hopi Foundation or the Ashui Awan, I hope I'm not saying that wrong, museum at the Pueblo of Zuni. The let's see, I'm trying to think, does he mute mute or Southern Ute have? Well I mean Southern Ute has their own tribal museum, but it's it's in association with History Colorado. Right, right, right. Or, you know, you can support um, tribal enterprises. So like, for example, the Ute Mountain Ute Tribal uh, Park, you know, you can get a tour through the, the tribal park or the, the Wallapai Nation, their uh, river rafting on the Grand Canyon, have a supai, you know, hiking down to, to have a supai falls. Uh, so there's lots of, of like organizations you can donate to or tribal enterprises you can support. Yeah, Anna, do you have any that you want to add to that that list? I mean, I'm just thinking of like I'm sure it, you could find local local resources where you are. I'm just thinking like as a member of the Native community here in Colorado Springs, mm-hmm. one of the a good way to maybe not the best way, but one of the ways that you can find those organizations attend local powwows and things. Those are nearly always open to the public and often have booths of different organizations that are helping out people in the in the indigenous community. Here in Colorado Springs, we have an organization called Hasea Advocates that is indigenous run to help victims of in, indigenous victims of domestic violence. And they're doing some great work locally here in Colorado Springs. You know, I'm sure there are a lot of different like the Denver Indian community or, or I'm sorry, the Denver Indian Center up in Denver. You know, places like that that really are doing good work in their own communities too. Yeah, I mean, yeah, tribal yeah. resources are also wonderful and mm-hmm. great. Um, but you could probably find some locally too that that you could contribute to and and help foster the work that they're doing as well. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and also like, you know, let's say you, maybe you don't have a lot of money to donate. You know, you're younger, you're a student, you're retired, maybe you don't have money, but you have time. So um, some of these organizations may want board members, um, you know, obviously they may prefer indigenous board members where possible, but let's say maybe you have a skill that would be useful to them. They may still be interested in having you serve as a board member and give your time and energy, even if you're not indigenous. So like uh, Living Heritage Research Council, for example, we're going to be recruiting a bunch of new board members for positions. Obviously, with the focus of our organization, we're always going to want to have indigenous board members wherever possible. But right now, you know, if you have skills in, let's say, um, marketing, fundraising, nonprofit experience, like those are skills that we could really use because we're trying to recruit for right now a, a secretary, a fundraising chair, governance chair, outreach and public relations chair, and possibly a vice president. So we're, we're trying to definitely expand our board and grow as an organization. So obviously, if you're Indigenous and you have those skills, please, 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 please reach out to us. Um, but even if you're not, you know, like the, that's some skills that would be really helpful to us and to helping us amplify Indigenous voices and be able to do more Indigenous-led projects. Yes. Great example. Yes. Yes. Yes, please. Please come join Anna and I. Hang out with us. Um, <laughs> um, also, if you if you want to hang out with us and you're not in those criteria, but you are an indigenous like student or young person and you want an internship and you want to hang out with us, we're also going to be recruiting for, for interns in the spring. So if and, and, and we do some really cool projects, too. So. Yes, yes. A lot of neat opportunities, too. Yeah, yeah. So we've had interns. So this year, for example, we had two interns from the Hopi tribe. They are awesome. And they've come out with us on fieldwork projects at um, Browns Canyon National Monument, Bears Ears National Monument in, within the Monticello Field Office, um, the Moab Field Office. Um, so they've gotten to go to, like, really cool, beautiful places and go there with elders and interview them about what the place means to them. It's been really cool experiences seeing the interns and the elders interact. And one of the coolest professional experiences for me personally, and obviously you could tell that it it meant a lot to both the elders and the interns. So very excited to continue doing that. And then they're, you know, getting the opportunity to, to do the, the different skills involved in seeing an ethnographic project through, you know, like transcribing the interviews after field work or working on the report, things like that. So if you're interested in, in cultural anthropology, archaeology, any related field, uh, and you are an indigenous person and you're interested in this type of work, pay attention to our Facebook page or you can also sign up for our newsletter, like through our website, livingheritage.net. If you scroll down, a little thing will pop up asking if you want to join our newsletter. And that'll keep you in the loop about what's happening with Living Heritage Research Council. And that's true, like whether you want to follow our internships or not, like, or if you're just interested in following what we're doing, the newsletter at livingheritage.net or our Facebook page, Living Heritage Research Council, you can follow what we're doing on both those places. Yes. I, it's a great organization and doing good work, but um, yeah, we need more help. So. <laughs> <laughs> we do. And we do need more donations too. We're, uh, we, we're actually right now, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we're partnering with Osprey to work on donations for this year. So Osprey has donated four packs. Um, in addition to the the packs, the three packs that they provided with our intern to our interns, which we got the, the Living Heritage Research Council logo that Lyle Belenqua created. We got those embroidered on them. And so they donated four more packs that we can use as donation incentives. So again, uh, we'll be embroidering the, the Living Heritage Research Council logo on the, the back of them. And then we're doing a fundraising drive right now. We're getting close to the end of it by the time this airs, but definitely you can still be part of it where if you donate on our website, if you do a one-time donation, you'll be considered for one of the packs. If you 
set up a recurring donation. So like, let's say you want to do like $5 a month or, you know, $10 a month, which might be like the same that adds up to your one time donation, but then we can like know what's coming and, and count on that in the future, which is really helpful for us as an organization when we're looking at growth and trying to expand our team. So if you, if you do a recurring donation, no matter how small, like dollar a month, we don't care, then those people will be put in for two potential packs. Um, so, and it's for the, it is for the highest of each of these categories. So whoever has the highest one-time donation and the top two highest recurring donations. Uh, and then also if you like, again, if you don't have a lot of money to donate, there's an option there, which is if you live in Colorado and you shop at Kroger stores, so either City Market, King Supers, you have a Kroger card, you can go online and register Living Heritage Research Council as your nonprofit that you want to support. Um, it takes like two minutes. It's really fast and easy. You let us know that you did that and you'll be in the running for the final backpack. So again, that's a free option if you live in Colorado and it, it's like the recurring donations because it supports us um, regularly into the future as long as you keep, you keep us as your nonprofit on the on the card. So it's really helpful for us. And it's, again, two minutes, it's free. It's really nice and easy. And we do have Amazon Smile if you don't live in, in Colorado as well. Oh, I, I was just about to ask about the Amazon Smile. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. The, the tricky thing with the Amazon Smile is you always got to remember to like log in with like Amazon Smile. Uh, but as long as you do that, we do get it. I didn't know that. We hope that you will uh, consider donating to our nonprofit or, you know, again, board members, please, or if you're a student, interns. <laughs> yeah. All of the above. Cool. All right. Well, we are running over on this segment, um, but I'm just so glad that we were able to have you come back on and talk about your work, you know, the, the Palmer excavation, which was so cool. Talk, talking more in depth about land acknowledgements because that's something that we've touched on on the podcast, but not really gone in in depth uh, into land acknowledgements. And then talking about what people can do uh, to, to take action instead of just words. So thanks yeah. for, for coming on, Anna. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> All right. I will talk to you soon. Thanks again. Right. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash heritagevoices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Music Store. Also, please share with your friends or write us a review. Sharing and reviewing helps more people find the show and gets the perspectives of Heritage Voices' amazing guests out there into the world. Don't we just need more of that in anthropology and land management? If you have any more questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org If you'd like to volunteer to be on the show as a guest or even a co-host, reach out to me as well, Jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org You can also follow more of what I'm doing on Facebook at Living Heritage Anthropology and the nonprofit Living Heritage Research Council or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, huge thank you to Lyle Belenqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Max Lander. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. 
Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Fra 